0: I hope you'll uh, turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. That's where we are this morning. We want to pick up where we left off last week. In fact, we want to do a little quick review because we covered a lot of material last week, but I want to uh, reiterate some of what we covered and then we'll pick up from there and move into uh, the rest of the chapter. Hopefully we'll finish the chapter off this week. One of the things that I'd like you to notice, especially in the readings that we just had done, is that we had a portion of Psalm 18 read, and this may be of use to you as you work through some of the psalms, especially those that are referred to as imprecatory psalms. Uh, That's a statement that's used, a descriptor that's used to tell uh, about psalms where uh, enemies are being destroyed, where perhaps David or someone else would pray that his enemies would be uh, trampled under the ground, uh, they would be destroyed, their children would be dashed against the rocks. And you say, how do I reckon those things with a God who loves, and especially New Testament Christianity, where I'm called to love even my enemies, and that that kind of violence would not be uh, proper? And the basic answer to that, or at least one of the answers to that, is that you recall that God uses the pictures, uses the events of the Old Testament, real events in space and time, but for us in the New Covenant, those events become types and shadows that help us understand spiritual truths. And as we're talking about in Hebrews 12 here, gaining mastery in holiness, dealing with indwelling sin, we see that played out for us in psalms like this, where David will say, you've taught my hands how to war, how to do battle. That's precisely what's being talked about is the spiritual reality of confronting indwelling sin and dealing with that. It's not about dealing with our natural enemies. If we have natural enemies, we're to be praying for them. We're to be working for their salvation. We're to be crying out to God on their behalf. But our real enemies are spiritual enemies. There's the world, the flesh, and the devil. And in that case, I want to see the devil's children His plans, his schemes. I want to see those little baby schemes dashed against the rocks. I want to see his teeth broken so that the attempts that he has to befuddle and disturb the church are destroyed. And that's what's going on in those Psalms. We're to understand them in their full spiritual impact that way. Well, last week we started looking then at this portion of Scripture, Hebrews chapter 12, in light of... Uh, One verse out of the book of Revelation where Jesus is referred to as the faithful and the true witness. And by way of quick review to encapsulate the concept that we're after, we're exploring just one of the most amazing aspects of the marvelous salvation of Jesus Christ uh, that he's purchased for us with his blood. That is, he has a continuing ministry to us. In his priesthood, as an intercessor, but specifically, as we see, he comes alongside in this portion. You've got your Bible there, going back to the beginning of the chapter. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, we looked at that last week as those in chapter 11, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. He doesn't just save us and justify us. He continues the work of perfecting us. He does this through His Word. He does it through the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. But He doesn't just save us and then let us run like a wind-up doll that you've, a toy, you wind it up and then just let it run. That isn't the Christian life. He comes alongside because He intends for us, as we talked about in great detail last week, to grow in the image of Christ. Let me set my timer here so that we actually do have our sandwiches. They're only snacks in between. So He is both the founder, the one who instigates all of this, and He is the perfecter of our faith. He's fully engaged in continuing to minister to us so that we may gain the mastery over indwelling sin. And this is central to the Christian life. We're going to visit this all the way through again today. We cannot eliminate sin. There's no way to kill it. Sin doesn't die. It's not a substance. It's not a living thing. You can't kill sin. What you do is you die to it as we're told in the, in the book of Romans. We learn then this holy skill of living in an entirely different place. So I'll go back to the statement that I used last week, and for some of you this may have been a bit of a shock, but if you are not daily aware of the motions of indwelling sin in your own heart and engaged in genuine battle against them, you are not living the Christian life. This is Christianity 101. I'm justified, declared righteous by the imputed righteousness of Christ, and now I start this lifelong battle grappling with the remnants of indwelling sin. Now, and again, my battle isn't again the, against the remnants of indwelling sin in my wife. It's against the indwelling sin in me. It's not about the indwelling sin in your husband. It's about the indwelling sin in you, and as we begin to, to tackle this and jump into it the way we're supposed to, we really begin to live the Christian life. Again, we said counterintuitively, as one grows in grace, you don't grow less aware of your sin, you grow more aware of your sin. I know that's counterintuitive, but it's reality. And so if you think that your improvement in Christ is somehow measured by being less aware of sin, you're actually deceiving yourself you're going in the wrong direction. You become more aware of your sin and grapple with it on a deeper and deeper deeper level. We also discussed three possible ways that we can relate to how Jesus deals with us or 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 how we relate to him in this battle that we have. Some of us would might think of Christ as a cheerleader. And cheerleaders are fun, And they make us feel good, but they do nothing to help the athlete win. All they do is cheer them. And they cheer them whether they lose or win. They just stand by and go, yay team. Well, team may be lousy. And I don't need a cheerleader. Just somebody to say, yay team, is foolishness. It's great. Isn't it wonderful that we should all feel so good about ourselves when we don't do good things? No that's the world's thinking but it's not biblical thinking uh, my wife and i have this ongoing discussion uh, about what constitutes uh, someone uh, a person who is respectable or honorable and how does a wife respect her husband if he's not respectable and of course it's the same thing how does a wife love or how does a husband show unconditional love to his wife when she's not very lovable are very lovely. So you've got these conflicting realities that have to go on there. Um, We should not be telling people that they are honorable when they do dishonorable things. Matter of fact, Scripture reserves the word shame for when we consciously choose to live below our privilege, who and what we are. That's what shame is reserved for. It's shameful when we choose to do things that are contrary to God's word. And we should feel ashamed, but we shouldn't stop there. We should repent of it and turn so that we understand the affirmation of God. But cheerleader is not what we're after here, and we can have these very positive good things, but that isn't what we're after. Or we can think of Jesus only in terms of a judge. Now, judges can tell us what's wrong. They do often tell us what's wrong, but they don't tell us how to correct What's wrong. And some of you may have related to Christ in your own Christian life as he's just there judging you. As a faithful and true witness, he's just telling you what's wrong. But that's never the picture that the Bible paints. We're going to come back and deal with that again in a little bit. The picture is this He is invested in you gaining the mastery over indwelling sin. He is with you in the process. When you fall, when you fail, Christ doesn't kick you out and stomp on you. He picks you up and says, Now, let's do this better. And teaches us the holy skill of living the way that we ought to live with him. So we looked first at the framework which is given to us in the first two verses of the chapter. I won't go through these in detail. We did one at a time last week. He points back to chapter 11 and says, you know what? Others have won this race, and in the process they had really abysmal lives. It's amazing how really messed up people, "...have won the walk of faith." He points to Samson and Jephthah, of all people. points to a really motley crew. And yet these are listed as examples for us to say they believed God, they trusted God, they persevered, and God blessed them. Winning the race includes dealing with sin. That's the very outset here. "...since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside, also lay aside, every weight and sin which clings so closely." If we're going to strive for the mastery, dealing with sin is, is key. Third, winning the race requires endurance. This is exactly what he tells us in verse 1, but then he tells us this amazing prize. This is the goal. The goal in verse 10 is that we may share in His holiness. That word share being one that we may actually participate in God's own holiness. In this way, that Holiness becomes as natural to the believer as it is to God Himself. Now that's a transition that's yet to be completed and won't be completed until Christ returns. But it's the process that we're in in this walk called sanctification. Then we looked at A second part, which is that we need reliance. And our total, I I would not do this personally. I I would not be the guy standing up and saying, sure, catch me if I fall. Not going to happen. But it is the way that he calls us to trust him. And so we look at him, at Christ. That's exactly the terminology that's being used here. Verse 3, consider him. Look to him. Think about him. He is a champion. He endured. He did this already. And none of us are facing the challenges he did. Not a one of us. And so take him seriously, verse 5. He, You've forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. Don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. And we teased out that word discipline. We think of discipline only in the negative in American terms. Discipline means I get smacked. No. The word paiduo, which is used here, has both connotations. Training up, learning, teaching, and correcting by chastening if necessary. But the main thought is training up. He comes alongside. He wants to teach us the holy skill of walking in righteousness. So discipline, in fact, never is empty reprimand in the Bible. Never. Jesus never just scolds people. It's not the way Christ deals with us in our sin. He's not a scolding God. He will correct us if we need corrected, but the idea is to help us grow and to always be better, to gain the mastery. Access to this coaching is the privilege of sonship and sonship alone. The world does not know this privilege. This belongs to you, believer, And if you're not a believer here today, this doesn't belong to you. We want it to belong to you. We want you to come to Christ so that you can know how he will help you deal with indwelling sin. But it's not yours presently. And all of his efforts are aimed at your mastery. That's, again, what we saw in verse 10. That leads us to our third section in verses 12 through 17. And that is where he stops and the passage here gives direct encouragement In the process. And this is especially aimed, I want to speak to you, brothers and sisters, especially, who have your sin and your failure has discouraged you. You've lost heart. It's really set you back. You said, I'm never going to get mastery over this sin. I'm never going to correct this bad attitude that I've got. I'm never going to be able to deal with my envy. I'm never going to be able to deal with my greed. I'm never going to be able to deal with my lust, with my unforgiveness, with my self-pity, with all of those different things that qualify as the remnants of indwelling sin. And you've been sidelined and you've thought, there's just no hope. I basically have given up. It's too hard. If you were here for Sunday school, you heard, yes, it's too hard in yourself but not when grace is given. He calls us to the impossible by the power of His Spirit, by the instruction of His Word. So, this encouragement is given to us and it starts in verse 12. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. J.B. Phillips' uh, translation, his paraphrase, has a wonderful way of dealing with this verse. He says... Strengthen your grip again. Maybe dealing with indwelling sin and fighting that battle is no longer the primary uh, reality of your life. Maybe that no longer overshadows everything else. Because Christ has designed you to be conformed to His own image, this is the primary call, first and foremost. Dealing with indwelling sin. And so maybe you've let go. Maybe that's not the strong point anymore. That's gone by the wayside. And his first encouragement here is get back to it. Strengthen the weak hands. Let's strength, get your grip on this thing again and put your hand to it. Don't let go. I was reading a short passage this morning, early this morning, from John MacArthur. And he talks about preaching at a uh, seminary a number of years ago. And when he was there, he preached on 2 Corinthians 5, and he gave quite a number of exhortations to the crowd that was there. And afterward, he received a note from a seminary student who said, you know, the Bible simply gives us these truths, it's doctrine, and then you don't go any further than that. You just let that rest with the people. And he wrote back and said, hey, I appreciate your interest in helping my ministry, but you're wrong. The Bible's really divided into two basic concepts, instruction and exhortation. And you see this especially in the Apostle Paul. Almost all of his letters are divided equally between instruction and exhortation. That's why you have a word like therefore or wherefore or seeing that. It's I've learned this truth, now I need to put it into action. And sometimes we need to be exhorted, and that's what the writer to the Hebrews is doing right here. He's exhorting you, if you've let go of this, if this is no longer your preoccupation, how do I deal with my own sin, then you need to strengthen your grip again. You've gotten sidelined. Something else has now taken over the leading edge of your life, and you're not going to be able to do that. As a matter of fact, nothing will weaken you for being able to witness evangelistically to other people than when you are living a defeated life on your own. You just won't do it. You'll be scared. You don't want to tell others because you understand the conflict in your own life. So his first exhortation is, get back at it. And secondly, strengthen the weak knees. The picture there is take heart. Come on. Stop shaking so bad and get up. It's okay. You can, you can get back at this by the power of the Holy Spirit. Lift up drooping hands. Strengthen your grip and strengthen the weak knees. Literally the paralyzed knees. You've been, you're not walking down this path anymore. Well, free them up. Don't be paralyzed anymore. Let's get back into the race and back after what God has called us to, and take note of and work around your weaknesses. You know where some of your weak spots are. Some of you guys, there are TV shows you can't watch. There are things you can't look at. You know that. Well, then don't do that. Right? Say, that's a weakness. I recognize it as a weakness. For me, walking into a bakery, oh, you've got to watch that. All right. So what's, what's your weakness? You know the triggers to your own sins. You know what comes before that time when you break out in anger. You know what leads up to, and this is going to be paying attention to what's going on inside your own heart and mind, what leads up to times of severe doubt. He says, take note of those. Pay attention to them. That's that's the text. Make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint. When you know there's a weak spot, make a straight path away from that uh, in another direction so that you're not caught by that and put out of joint. And instead, so that you're not put out of joint, but rather healed so that you can gain strength in that place, and you're not caught by it anymore. But understand the motions of sin in your own heart. Maybe your motion towards sin is that of fear. And so this last week, as you've been watching television, you've been watching the news, what's been rising up in you is continuing fear. Are are they going to bomb my house? Are they going to bomb the next thing I'm at? Is is that what's going to happen? Is America going to come apart at the seams? And that fear has been building up in you all week, and you've been feeding that fear rather than coming back to the Word of God, which says, no, don't fear those things in the world. Trust Him you know what leads you to depression often sometimes there's there's outside circumstances it can be there's things in the body that go crazy i was sharing with the guys this er with uh, um uh, sky and ralph this morning when i was in california a few years ago and i i i got a plugged uh, salivary gland and i went to the hospital and they gave me some painkiller and I don't know what it is but I do know that for the next two days I hallucinated like a trooper I don't know what that stuff was but I saw monsters coming off the walls that was not healthy stuff for me that didn't work very well you know what triggers things in you watch for them and cultivate the holy skill of knowing how to, to get around those and not go there to train the mind Refuse to be sidelined by conflict. It's interesting that he puts that here in verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. I know of nothing that will distract me more from dealing with spiritual matters in my own heart than conflicts with other people. And this is especially true in the home. You're not going to be fighting sin if you're fighting your wife. You're not going to be fighting sin if you're fighting your husband. And you've got to deal with those conflicts and not let them put you out of the way. Refuse to be sidelined by those. As my dad used to say, he's 92 and he still repeats some of this stuff to me when I go over to see him. He says it's, it's hard to gossip about somebody or it's hard to be angry with somebody if you're on your knees praying for them. That's true. It's true. And so refuse to be sidelined by that. Know that conflict will steer you away from the battle of dealing with indwelling sin and put the focus on other people and make them the enemy. And then you're going to pray imprecatory psalms against your next-door neighbor. Lord, break his teeth. Dash his kids against the rocks. They keep letting their dog come over and dig up my garden. Go after them, God. No, that's, that's not what the prayer's about. It's about that stuff that's, that's inwardly. Refuse to be sidelined by conflict with others. And then in verse 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. And he doesn't finish it there. He appends to that, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. When you're not living a grace-based life, that your salvation is rooted in the finished work of Christ and not your own performance, you will grow bitter over time. You'll grow bitter at your own sin, you'll grow bitter at other people's sin. So he says you've got to come back to keeping rooted in grace lest a root of bitterness spring up and when bitterness springs up, it'll defile everybody. You know a bitter person because you can't talk to them for more than ten minutes without them telling you what they're bitter about. It comes out. Can't help it. It always defiles someone else. It doesn't just stay with you. Nobody has the spiritual gift of crankiness. Nobody. Nobody has the spiritual gift of being grouchy. It's not in the Bible. But when we're bitter, inwardly, man, that'll come out. And you've got to go back and find out what that bitterness is about and confess it, repent of it, because he wants to give you mastery over it. doesn't want you to leave, leave you bound in it, but wants to give you victory over it. And then in 16 and 17. And make sure that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. And note how he classifies this. Esau sold his birthright for a single meal. And you know that afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. You remember the Old Testament uh, account here, where Esau uh, comes out of the field hunting and he comes home to his brother jacob jacob is a mama's boy jacob is home cooking he's doing what uh, he's got sauce going and so he and and jacob comes and esau comes home and says and we know it was apparently they were italian before they were the jewish because it was red sauce that that he had going on in, in the thing so anyway he comes yeah tony's back there going yeah all right um And so his brother says, give me some of that before I die. Die? You're home. There's food on the table. You're not going to die. But his brother takes advantage of it and says, well, sell me your birthright and I'll give you some. And he goes, okay. The pinch of the immediate will make us make bad decisions because we've lost view of the eternal. It's right where he was. You watch out for those fleeting distractions. They'll come. One of the things that Psalms says, Proverbs says, about temptation is it comes knocking on the door. But it only knocks for a while. And then it goes away. The trick is to not answer long enough. But we are so given in our society... This guy's always telling me, I'm into immediate gratification. Me too. I want what I want. I want it now. That isn't how you grow. You don't get to be 16 by at 13 saying, I want to be 16 now. Because no matter how much you say it, you won't be 16 for three more years. The same thing with holiness. Same thing with growing in grace. It's not going to happen now. It's going to take time. But the fleeting distractions are what pull us off. That momentary thing. This, this one thing, I, I, I know I sent out a, uh, a reminder or a, a, a short um, review of a little book written by a friend of mine, Bruce Ray, uh, who's one of our fellow fire church uh, pastors. And he's written this little book on suicide. And one of the statements that he puts in that book for helping uh, somebody who's contemplating suicide, somebody who's caught up in suicidal thoughts is he says you have to remember that it's a permanent solution to a temporary crisis. It's a temporary crisis. That doesn't mean it's going away tomorrow, but it isn't eternal. It's a vast difference. And we lose that perspective. We lose it desperately. So get back at it. If you've been derailed, and this isn't the focus of your life, you're not really... On on tap with dealing with indwelling sin. Let me call you back. All right. Let, let's get after this, folks. And take heart. Yeah, you failed. Right here, you and me together. This week we sinned lots of times. Yeah, y'all should have your hands up. Don't 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 look at me like I'm the only one who did this. You all sin too. You're gonna sin before you get out of here today, probably. Especially when you talk about the sermon and me. Get <laughs> back at it and and take heart. This is part of the battle. You get to go back and visit it and visit it and visit it again and again and again until you get the mastery. Keep hammering at it. That's what Christ has called you to. And take note of your weaknesses. Work around them. Pay attention to what goes on in your own heart, those triggers. and And... and Set for that and refuse to be sidelined by conflict and watch out for fleeting distractions. And above all, keep rooted in grace. Keep rooted in grace. You are loved because Christ is loving. You are saved because God saves, not because you're sweet and pretty and holy. It's grace. Never let that flee from your mind. And then he moves us into perspective. And you need perspective. I love people who are clever like this. Um, That picture is simply one of him being closer and her being further away. And in the process, they were able to produce what I thought was a rather entertaining little picture. Verses 18 through 24 gives us a heavenly perspective on all this that is astounding to me. I love what comes to us in this next portion of the passage. Picking up in verse 22, he says, But you have come to Mount Zion. Well, let me go back. You gotta qualify it with verse 18 first and down through. You've not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. If you know your Old Testament, you know the picture. That's Mount Sinai when the law's being given. And he says, you haven't come to Mount Sinai where the law was given. Here's here's one of the best things I've heard about fixing bad theology in ten years in one sentence by somebody the other day. The law, Sinai, did not lead us to Christ so that Christ could lead us back to Sinai. And if that's your view of the Christian life, you're going to be bound by the law all your life. Jesus didn't save you so that you could go back under the law. He saved you so you could walk in freedom and in grace and in the power of the Holy Spirit. So, he says, you didn't come to Mount Sinai. That isn't where the Christian is. This isn't our point of reference. Not where the law was given. For they could not endure, verse 20, the order that was given. And the order was, if even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight even Moses said, I tremble with fear. Moses was used to seeing God face to face. And this scared the willies out of him. Instead, he says, verse 22, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. Sky and I have a friend um, A couple out in Oklahoma. Uh, Mike is just a little bit younger than I am. I think Mike is 48. I can't remember. Um, When I got sick last year, Mike was diagnosed with a brain tumor. Uh, They took him down to Houston. They operated on it. They've done all the follow-up. They did some other stuff. And we thought he was doing really well. And then we got a, a note from his wife, Kathy, um, two weeks ago, and she said, "Mike's gone home to be with the Lord. He's 48. Ah, that brain tumor. When he stepped out of his body, there were a host of angels in festal gathering, in their clothes, dressed for a party, welcoming him. Christian, that's where you live. In your battle, no." That when the battle's over, there will be an innumerable company of angels dressed in festal garments saying, We're so glad you're here. It is amazing. And they will welcome you through the gates. Now that's a bit of perspective. I need to keep that perspective. When I'm down in the trenches here and stressed about my own sin and knowing that I blew it, this week but there's this company of angels they are anticipating our arrival as those who have finally won the victory what a great thing God has prepared for us but that isn't all so you've come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God the heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. When you get there, those who went before you will be ready to greet as well. That whole group of people in chapter 11, they're going to be there. My mom's going to be there. Bob Collier's going to be there. He's waiting for us. The whole bunch of them are. All these people that have gone before us Mike Cleaver's going to be waiting there and he's going to be arguing with them not to let me in I'll have to hurt him but I'll still get in it could be all those people that have gone before us don't forget them don't let that leave your consciousness you're surrounded by this great cloud of and they're waiting for you And they will greet you with great joy when you cross over. Go back and reread the end of Pilgrim's Progress when he crosses into the celestial city. Oh, man, what stunning stuff. And he isn't done yet. You've come to Mount Zion and to the city of the Living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to the innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the Judge of all. Your heavenly Father awaits your arrival with anticipation, and assumes you're going to get there, because He's placed His Spirit in you, because Christ has been, you've been justified by the blood of His Son. If you're a believer here today, you're going to make it. You're going to get there. And to this, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and He's not done yet, and to Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, He will not fail. He will see you through and He will be there to greet you when you come through the door. What a Savior. What a salvation we have. The one who has walked beside you every step of the way so far and will never leave you nor forsake you even to the end of the age. This one who the passage says, and it may be somewhat cryptic to you, That his blood speaks of better things than Abel's blood. When Abel was killed by his brother, his blood was poured out into the earth and his death cried for vengeance. When Christ died, his blood was poured out and his blood cries out for forgiveness and cleansing of sin. He's waiting for you, believer. And you say, but... But you don't know how bad I've blown it. Nah, I don't have to. I know His blood is greater than your greatest sin. And He's waiting. He's waiting. Let me give you an illustration that I have used before. But it doesn't matter. You have to listen to it because I've got the microphone. One of my favorite preacher Steve Brown, and I wanted to read it to you rather than just try to remember it because I think his wording is so good. Uh, His daughter Robin was in high school and she was uh, enrolled in a very difficult English literature course and she desperately wanted to get out of it. And so Steve relates the account this way she sat there on her first day I wish I could say it like he does she sat there on her first day and thought if I don't transfer out of this class I'm going to fail the other people in this class are much smarter than me I can't do this she came home with tears in her eyes and begged me her dad to help her get out of the class so she could take a regular English course and I said well of course So the next day, we went down to school and went to the head of the English department. It was a Jewish woman and a great teacher. And she, the head of the English department, looked up and saw me standing there with my daughter and could tell that Robin was about to cry. There were some students standing around, and because the teacher didn't want Robin to be embarrassed, he dismissed the students, saying, I want to talk to these people alone. As soon as the students left, the door was closed. Robin began to cry. I said, I'm here to get my daughter out of that English class. It's too difficult for her. The problem with my daughter is that she's too conscientious. So can you please put her into a regular English class? The teacher said, Mr. Brown, I understand. Then she looked at Robin and said, Can I talk to Robin for a minute? And I said, Sure. And she said, Robin, I know how you feel. But what if I promised you an A? No matter what you did in the class. If I give you an A before you even started, would you be willing to take the class? My daughter is not dumb. She started and said, well, I think I could do that. The teacher said, I'm going to give you an A in the class. You already have an A, so now you can go to class. Later, the teacher explained to me what she had done. She explained how she took away the threat of a bad grade so that Robin could learn English, and she ended up making straight A's on her own in that class. That is how God deals with us, he writes. Because we are, right now, under the completely sufficient, imputed righteousness of Christ, Christians already have an A. The threat of failure, judgment, and condemnation has been removed. We're in forever. And nothing we do will make our grade better, and nothing we do will make our grade worse. We've been set free. Knowing that God's love for you and approval of you will never be determined by your performance for Jesus, but because of Jesus' performance for you will actually make you perform better and not less and worse. In other words, grace mobilizes performance Performance does not mobilize grace. And then he adds, if you don't believe that, ask Robin. Beloved, that's how this works. That's why he's calling you to this. That's why he's saying you can be fearless in facing your sin while you don't have to deny your sin and hide it and pretend like you don't have it. Of course you do. I know some pretty wicked things about some of you, and I don't know half of it. And you know some wicked things about me, and you don't know a tenth of it. But Christ knows it all, and he paid for it all with his blood. And so we can go after it tooth and nail without fear, without doubt. John Calvin wrote, It is entirely by the intervention of Christ's righteousness that we obtain justification before God. This is equivalent to saying that man is not just in himself, but that the righteousness of Christ is communicated to him by imputation while he is strictly deserving of punishment. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. So we'll finish here. That's scary, isn't it? One is made up, the other's reality. That's the truth. So let me tell you some reality here. They're the last few verses that we want to consider, 25 through 29. Here's some good reality, but it's okay. So listen to the coach. You can't do this without him. That's what he gives us there in... Verse 25. See that you do not refuse Him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused Him who warned on earth, much less will we escape if we reject Him who warns from heaven. Either we stand in grace and deal with our sin, or we stand in our works and we're judged. But listen to Him. And stand in that place and proceed. Go after it. And then in 26 and 27... At at that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised. Yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. And this phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, the things that have been made, in order that the things cannot be shaken may remain. We're almost there. Human history is almost done. And if it isn't for the world as a whole, I'm at least 60 years closer to the end than I was. Maybe you're close. We're almost there. Hang in. 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. It can't be taken away. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship and all. The kingdom is yours. Rejoice in it. For our God is a consuming fire Bear in mind, all this earthly stuff's going to be burned up, and then you're going to. What a God of grace! What a wonderful thing to tell us, and and what a, a preparation for us, so that we don't back off from dealing with our sin and pretending to everybody like we're fine. And Everything's good, and we've got it all under control. But recognize what's really going on in our hearts. Deal with it honestly, and then with joy and fervor, go after it. I will close with this, although it's not in my notes. I've mentioned it to you before. Forgive me, but again, I've got the microphone. One of the greatest spiritual, blessings, uh, spiritual lessons I ever learned, I learned pranks playing Super Mario Brothers. Super Mario Brothers is profoundly spiritual. First of all, it teaches you how to deal with anger. Um, <laughs> but what I loved about playing Super Mario Brothers, and this is hon- the honest truth, I bought I bought this little, this is going back a few years, I bought a little Game Boy for Sarah when she was young. They don't even make a Game Boy anymore, I don't think. A little tiny thing. We bought it for her for Christmas, and then I played with it so much she made me buy her one. Um, <laughs> and i was traveling for the company i was working for and the only thing the only game i had was super mario brothers and i was i was in an airport and i was playing super mario brothers and i couldn't get past level 4 and i just kept dying and going back and if you if you play the game you know that you get to die 3 4 times and then you get to start over again it bumps you back but you get to start over again and it dawned on me it's exactly what god does with us he says i've given you eternal life So no matter how many times you fail at trying to get over the hump, you can come back and do it again. That's grace. So you don't have to be afraid of your sin. You can come back and attack it again. Are you going to fail? You might. And then you'll gain the skill. You'll figure out what goes on in my own heart. How do I approach that? How do I do that better next time? What's the passage of Scripture? Who's the person that I can talk to who conquered this? How can I find a way to deal with that area of my life? And as you continue to go after it, sooner or later, you move to the next level. And you say, i got it. Now, you blow it again and then you back up but you have the courage to go back and do it over and over and over again. Don't be afraid to keep challenging the same sin. You keep challenging the same sin because you haven't conquered it yet. That's what it's all about. Keep going after it. And by grace, by grace, the Lord will welcome you with the angels and the rest of the saints and God, the judge of spirits. Can you imagine the judge is the one who's going to welcome you in the door along with the son? What a precious gift. Father, we thank You for Your truth. We thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the encouragement. We thank You for the unsparing clarity with which You tell us these things and how You address them. Lord, uh, we sit here as a host of sinners. Sinners saved by grace, but people who sin still. And how we thank You for the precious blood of Christ that has cleansed us and that moves us to continue to attack that sin. And as we leave this place today, as we prepare even to just go downstairs and have a sweet time of fellowship together, may we talk of the wonders of the great salvation and the great Savior who's provided it, Christ our Lord. And we ask it in His name. Amen. If we can all stand, please.
1: Oh Lord. I so, my Savior God to Thee. How.